You're listening to the Speaking Tongues podcast. I'm your host, El Sharice. Each week, I sit down to a conversation with multilinguals where we discuss and celebrate language, life, and culture through our own perspectives. Episode 118, Speaking Nahuatl. Hello, language lovers. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Speaking Tongues, the podcast and conversation with multilinguals. This week, I'm so happy to share this conversation with Kui and Daniel about the Nahuatl language. In this episode, we start with a land acknowledgement and a call to action to support indigenous communities. Kui and Daniel talk to us about how they each grew up with the Nahuatl language and how they've learned more about their cultures as they've grown up. We talk about the construction of Nahuatl and variants within the language. We talk about the evolution of the language through generations and through the influence of colonial Spanish language in Mexico. Kui and Daniel tell us about community-based efforts to reinforce Nahuatl language and culture and how we can respectfully engage with the community. Thank you again to Kui and Daniel for sharing your language and heritage with all of us. If you enjoy episodes of Speaking Tongues, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the Speaking Tongues podcast on Apple Podcasts, and like and subscribe on YouTube so that other language lovers like ourselves can find the show. Special shout out to Speaking Tongues recent supporters and patrons, Heidi L., Linnea H., Pat N., and Yari A. If you've been a longtime listener of the show or even a recent listener, you can now pledge ongoing support for the show on buymeacoffee.com or on patreon.com. And as you know, I wrote a book. My Food Zine of International Language and Cuisine Taste Buds Volume 1 is available now for purchase. Check social media for the sneak peek inside the book and make sure you purchase one for yourself and one for your friends. Holidays are coming after all. Links to all platforms are in the show notes. Okay, let's chat. Welcome back to another episode of Speaking Tongues. I'm here today with Kui and with Daniel. How are you both today? I'm doing good. Thank you for, for having us. Yeah. Uh, we are going to be speaking about the language of Nahuatl. And I'm so excited to learn from both of you today and to have this conversation. Um, I want to start this episode. We want to start this episode with a land acknowledgement, uh, indigenous land acknowledgement. And Kui, I will uh, turn this over to you to say a few words um, to acknowledge our indigenous people in, of the Americas. Nineki Nikistos land. Titstoke pan masewalme tlali, masewalme lenape, masewalme kich, tongva, wan masewalme kalapuya. I want to say that we are on lands of the lenape, the kich, tongva, and the kalapuya people. Um, and then also, as well, in regards to that, you know, it's not just acknowledging but also follow it with the course of action. You know, um, who, wherever you are, you know, whoever's lands you are on, every single community is different, you know, and how it looks for me is with the Confederate tribes of the Warm Springs Reservation, uh, they don't have access to water. Um, they mostly rely on bottled water um, so there is a fund link in our link in our bio on Speak Nahuatl to uh, fund that uh, drive, water drive. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I will add the link to that uh, in the show notes and, of course, with uh, other, you know, other of your links so that people can get in touch with you, uh, you know, as soon as possible or they can find more information. Perfect. I like to start each episode with the same question uh, to both of you. Uh, what is your first language and which languages have you learned to speak? I can start. Um, well, my first language, well, it became Spanish. Uh, that's my mother tongue. Um, and so, you know, when I cross over this colonial border, 
Um, I learned English and that's why I'm speaking English now. Um, when I was younger, um, this is something that, you know, over the years I found out, wow, I'm into language. I'm into learning languages. Once I was done with Spanish in high school, my teacher was also a French teacher. Uh, mm. So they taught Spanish and French and they said, well, just come on and, and learn French. It'll be easy. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I learned, um, you know, from her and then a little like a year into college as well. Um, and, you know, I wanted to learn more. Like I wanted to speak, you know, I wanted to, but I think, um, you know, it's more focused on like studying the language more than speaking it. Right. And so that kind of discouraged me, you know, to continue. Um, and so for the past six years, I've been learning Nahuatl. Um, and, you know, throughout those years, it's also me learning about my family, you know, and how Nahuatl is also spoken um, in our family. There's still words mm -hmm. that we still talk about, especially it has to do with cultivating corn, you know. Um, my uncle telling me, you know, how they cultivated corn and when. So like these words that he was saying, I'm like, wow, those are now what words, you know? So. Wow. That's exciting. Mm -hmm. How about you, Daniel? Mm, for my case, uh, I actually started learning English and Spanish simultaneously. So I didn't exactly have uh, just one language that I was learning. I I am the youngest out of four siblings, so I did get English in the home and outside of the home, and I did speak Spanish with family members as well as uh, sometimes in school, but like words here and there. So, but I started getting older, especially in the first grade. I didn't really get that much Spanish in the classroom, except for maybe a word here and there from teachers who also didn't speak it. So, I guess my culinary journey was a little bit more direct because I didn't get to learn now what growing up and then it was like Spanish sometimes and then more English only and it kind of just I guess in layman's terms it kind of happened but it didn't really just happen it's those things that if you once you evaluate them then you're like oh okay this is what happened so my first languages was uh, English and Spanish okay uh, when did you start studying Nahuatl Daniel I started learning it, I want to say, yes, it was in the year 2016. Okay. I had already been wanting to learn uh, for a variety of reasons, most more personal than anything, because, well, it's part of my ancestral language that uh, I got this, I'm first generation and not being taught the language, which was, uh, it's pretty sad to know, but the mm -hmm. upside is that I am learning it. So uh, it's in 2016 um, on my own as well. With the help of uh, organizations such as La Tapasoli and any uh, any resources that I can find online, I've been able to learn the language. Uh, and I would say my number one contributor has been my mom. Uh, even though she did um, didn't always utilize it in the community, she did. Uh, her mom, which is my grandma, and her dad on occasion would speak to them in Nahuatl. My grandma mainly spoke Nahuatl, very little Spanish. My grandpa spoke more uh, simultaneously Spanish and Nahuatl. So, and she left the community at a young age, a, a lot of factors due to uh, economic reasons and mm. personal reasons. So she left and so, but however, she does have a lot of memories and because that's all she was ever spoken into, whether it was uh, a good comment or a, maybe could have been awarded better comment, anything that was <laughs> that was said to, you know, anybody in any language, she got it all in Nahuatl as well as anybody can remember. So yeah, whenever I talk to her, I really try to ask her like, to search for memories and see what it is that uh, how they spoke, because as we'll mention later on, there has been a couple of changes as well as revitalization. And that's been the journey uh, since 2016 for me. Wow, that's so exciting. I think that's I think that's really exciting. Um, I'd love to know about the language itself. I'd love to know, uh, you know, where are we hearing the language spoken, particularly in, in Mexico or in other parts of the Americas? Uh, what are some hallmarks of the language? Um, how do we form sentences, etc.? cetera? Um, and I, I'm really eager to have this conversation with you partly because I will admit my own ignorance in not realizing indigenous languages uh, you know, even in in Mexico or in Central America, et cetera, and not realizing how 
widely they are spoken to this day. I mean, I've I've learned because I've done my research, but I'm thinking about like growing up and when I was younger, not realizing that, you know, Mexico particularly is not just Spanish speakers, you know, so there there is uh, there are indigenous languages and indigenous culture there. So um, I'm really excited uh, to to learn about the the language and some of the history behind it and where we can hear it spoken and how we use it. Yeah, um, if we're talking about within the colonial borders of the Mexican state, um, there's uh, in the Mexican census of 2020, uh, there was over 1.6 million speakers of Nahuatl. And it's the second largest spoken language in the Mexican state. Um, and of course, the diaspora, you know, um, there's other people um, that, you know, due to migration for different reasons, you know, uh, the language is spoken in other part in, uh, also in the US, in California and Southern California. And also, it's the second largest, most spoken. Uh, uh, it's a, it's the most spoken language in North America or Toro Island, as 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 it's known as well. That's something that I learned myself too. Like I wasn't thinking of that of that as well, you know. And um, Quiklawak is my real name, you know. And so, I think that ever since I was a kid, I knew there was something else other than you know being a <laughs> Spanish speaker and being raised Catholic, you know, there was always something, you know, mm. when I was little, I was called like, I was asked, you know, or, or I was told as well, like, are you Indian? Like, are you Indio? You know? And then, so that kind of like made me think as, as a child and I was like 10 years old and I went to my grandma and I asked her like, are, are we Indios, like, are we Indian? Like, no, we're Mexican. So ever since then, you know, well, I guess I am Mexican, you know, but I knew there was something else. There's something else other than, you know, Quiklawak mm -hmm. meaning my name. Yes, he was mm -hmm. a ruler, an Aztec yeah. ruler. Um, but what else? You know, why is it that I'm the only one that has a uh, Nahuatl name in my family? You know. Um. And, you know, in terms of how it works, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's agglutinative, meaning you get, it's different parts that you glue together to form what are sentences in English. Like, for example, a lot of the, still to today, you know, how do you say I love you? You know, it's ni meets tlasochtla. So ni, you know, I'm doing the accent meets, meaning to you, and then tlasochtla, yeah is one of the verbs that means to love. Um, so that's kind of like the, the kind of how the language works. Yes, so uh, we actually covered a pretty good basics of the language and how uh, sentences are formed. Um, I would add that uh, throughout the time that has that the language has been being taught um, and that I've been learning, I also noticed that, uh, which might touch on the topic of the evolution of the language, uh, because there's a lot of influence of Spanish and Spanish encroaching upon uh, not just Nahuatl, but many indigenous languages. In the particular case of Nahuatl, uh, people, it's been for some time, but it's been a bit more apparent in recent years that uh, word structures have been switched. For example, if you were to say something like trying to refer to like a black cat uh, in our variant, it got a little bit distorted where now people might say uh, uh, like, like misotilique, which would be like, uh, is trying to say a black cat, but really it's, if you study it, it's actually kind of saying like a, like a cat who kind of got into a chimney and kind of got all of that on in it. And oh. that's because of Spanish. But if you were to reverse <laughs> it, the way it should be, it should be a tilique, wait, it should actually be a tilique misto instead of a miso tilique. So it kind of, it's kind of I don't want to tread uh, or compare it to English, but it's the most close that I can try to explain it so that people can understand in which, uh, because uh, in Spanish, you might, you might say kind of like a carro de ambulancia or like kind of like or like you might try to you might use different words to like uh, refer to something or like el idioma nahuatl and in English it would be like the nahuatl language. And it's kind of how uh, nahuatl does where uh, the noun of it would be at the end and then the adjective would be at the beginning of it. 
and how I said before, because of the influence of Spanish, um, those kind of social stuff sort of happened where they're kind of being switched. Um, but that would be how it's actually should be being spoken. And there's a couple of cool little features, um, such as also uh, words like on, like which means like for respect, kind of like if I you tell somebody, which is a, kind of like in Spanish, kind of like saying que hace usted. Um, that's where uh, the own would come in and that's like showing a respect to uh, either an elder or someone in a high regard position in the community or just somebody who you, they might be your family member, but you treat them with respect, even though that's that part of it has kind of been used a bit less, which is unfortunate, but it could either be considered uh, the language evolving or it could be considered a, a distortion, but that's the fun of it, exploring um, these little changes in, as time has gone by. Yeah, that's so interesting. I was going to ask you about if there is an influence of Spanish kind of changing the Nahuatl language, um, and you answered my question, but now I'm curious about evolution of the language. And, you know, as you speak with elders, grandparents in the community, um, have the words that they use are they any different than the words that would be used by uh, persons from your generation? Has the language evolved in that way at all? Um, or is it similar to what you're saying with it's evolved through the more influence of the Spanish being used in in the country? Uh, actually, I'm glad you got that question because I actually did ask my mom about this. From what I was able to gather, uh, because again, this is going to get a little bit of historical or a little bit sad, um, because indigenous peoples have always been th uh, thought of as being uneducated, being ignorant. Uh, so that's why the many uh, there was efforts to come into the communities and uh, teach Spanish. And with that happening, uh, some words kind of got a little bit distorted or were no longer used. For example, if we were to ask my grandmother, how would you say uh, my name is or yo me, yo me llamo? She would say neni monotza. But if you were to, which would be like, I call myself or like, me llamo. But if you were to ask somebody of like of the generation, probably the 1960s and on, or the more the 1980s, they would say, neni motoka. Because in Nahuatl, toca or tocait means um, name, it's a noun. But then because of, the, because of the influence of Spanish, it's kind of been thinking, oh, toca and must be a call, like a call in Nahuatl. And then so if you ask somebody who's a bit, they're still older, but not as, you know, like not like my grandma who um, uh, passed away in, in 2000. Uh, so she would have been maybe about right now, maybe like about in 98. So um, older generation, they would they would say Nani Monotza. So those are, I would say like little uh, changes here and there or kind of like greetings having a little bit shortened. Like uh, and our variant, luckily, as far as I remember, we do still say the complete version like uh, uh, so it's a little bit more full, like the time of day where you say things. But in other variants, um, which uh, I myself like to feature, other others may uh, disagree where they might say something like chikawatika uh, or biali, yawi, ki, which are shorter ways of saying a hello. Um, and it's I myself like it because it's an it's an addition to the language. Uh, there are some people who do believe in. Uh, preserving the old ways of saying things. Um, if, in my opinion, I believe in keeping both because it's a way of connecting to the past, the recent past, might I add, and then um, our present time. So I, I would say, yeah, the inf Spanish influence has been uh, encroaching, but because of the revitalization efforts, people are studying and seeing where we should re reclaim because we because our language is very rich and it's able to you can say a lot of things in the language. Um, as for example, I was actually, I won't get too much into it because it's actually politics, but I was trying to find a way to see if my mom would understand uh, the concept of gambling. And I just decided to say, okay, uh, tome mawiltiles, uh, which is domin, which would be like money. And then mawiltiles or mawiltilisli, which would be like uh, like a game or that kind of sort of thing. And then I, I said the word to my mom and I said, do you understand it? And she said like, kind of like money to, bets like money for bets and I'm like yep and that's the concept of gambling so really the language is able to form words and sentences all on its own and I would say that it's it's definitely not a negative to uh, have influence from other languages uh, I just do believe that it, we just have to be careful and making sure that we're not 
we're, we're questioning enough to where we're preserving the language and letting it evolve, but not distort it. And now we're just thinking in another language, but speaking it and not if that makes any sense. Was there ever a period of time? And I feel like you've both touched upon this a little bit, but was there ever a period of time officially when uh, people were not allowed to use Nahuatl or they were um, persecuted for doing so or kept from certain activities or certain parts of life because they were speakers of Nahuatl or um, has it always has it always been a part of families? Has it always been able to thrive out in the open? So historically, you know, it, it has been oppressed. There was actually a time when during the Spanish, um, you know, colonization, where even one of the kings wanted to make Nahuatl the official language of quote unquote New Spain. Um, because you know this is an indigenous language of of Mexico, and we're talking about just one, you know. Um, and nowadays, there's sixty eight indigenous languages in Mexico. Uh, some sources say that when the Spanish arrived, there was between two hundred and three hundred languages. Now, now it is a special case because it was used as a lingua franca. It was used as a language for people to communicate across different uh, nations. Um, and so that's why we have different place names that come from Nahuatl, uh, especially with the Mexican states like Jalisco and Oaxaca, um, even the country of Guatemala. It comes from Nahuatl word, also Nicaragua. And so, yeah, there was a point where it, it, it you know, the, 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 you know, the colonizers, the settlers wanted to make it an official, you know, um, but there was this push, you know, of course, with the, the you know, religion and Catholic church that no, we need to speak Spanish. And that's what occurred. And over the last 100 years, the um, education system in Mexico has made it a point to make everyone into a Spanish speaker. And it almost seems like every part of the Mexican government that has to do with indigenous languages, it's mostly about preserving them and documenting them, just preserving the knowledge. Um, I don't know, that's how I see it. You know, it's just mostly preserving the language. There's not that much efforts from the actual Mexican government to teach, to continue to teach the languages, you know? So it's mostly a lot of community-based efforts. You know, it takes people, the own people to continue the language, you know? Yeah, for sure. Um, are you familiar with the different, um, I don't want to use the word dialects, but um, I would imagine a language spoken by you said 1.2 million people varies in such a big country. Um, are there variations in in Mexico uh, with the language? And and what do you know about how the language varies throughout the country? Uh, well, there's 1.6 million um, over more. 1.6. Uh -huh. There's also a figure of <laughs> 1.7. And to be honest, I think it's higher. Um, why? Mm. Um, because it's, well, it's, it's a colonial government you know, that's doing this census. Um, yeah, it, it, it evolved independently. Each dialect, and you know, we, you know, the way that I see the word dialect and variant, kind of the same, just a variation of a language, you know? Mm. And it's in different parts, you know, like there's a variant in Durango, Nayarit. There's a variant in, um, there's variants in Central Mexico, what, you know, uh, Morelos and, the one from Guerrero, it can be divided into different into different states, into the different regions, the Huasteca. There's one million speakers there in itself. You know, it's been well preserved there because it's mountainous, it's it's very humid. And a lot mm -hmm. of the words that have survived, even in other places, are the ones that have to do with cultivating uh, corn. 
the ones that have to do with, you know, growing plants, you know, and then mm. also knowing that, you know, indigenous languages, not just now, not just the ones from Mexico, but our languages are land based. So yeah, those words, you know, are well preserved, you know, and there's some, you know, if you find a lot of sources, it's a lot of books written not from our point of view, it's from a, an academic point of view, an academic lens. So you will find sources that say that some dialects are not intelligible, but mm. over the past years, from my experience, they are intelligible. Um, there's even also the Nahuatl from El Salvador that's considered its own language, and I'm able to understand it. So. We actually touched again um, a lot of good points on um, how much is spoken and how the senses are taken um, and how you actually mentioned Al, uh, the word dialect. I myself have a little bit of a difficult time. Like, should I mention it or not? Because um, how we also said uh, it really just means the variation of the language. It's a synonymous to uh, a variant or variety, but because of the stigma, especially in Spanish saying dialecto and the way that it's been utilized even up to um, this day and age, it is used in a disrespective manner. So that's what gets difficult by using the word, um, even even just beginning to say things like dialect or variant uh, people get, um, they have mixed emotions on, on using that word. Uh, but what is a, but again, uh, there's words in Nahuatl that are still having, I would say, can be translated into Spanish, which has, has been the case historically and temporarily, such as like how we already might know, like aguacate, tomate, which would be like aguacate, tomate, but it's also been even in recent words um, that have been historical as well, but, uh, recently used such as like uh kilites, which is uh now it would be like kilit or it's like it's like or like herbs that you can eat um essentially any edible herb and that's been what is it uh like the what's it called the language still having influence in uh, modern day mexico but then going back a little bit to how it was mentioned on the census taking it gets a little bit tricky because for some time it, because of the stigma of being indigenous and and assuming indigenous identity some people who claimed it um, or could have claimed it did, it did refrain from the census or they might have been a bit uh, weary of really saying that they were, especially to uh, the state, so they were not sure they should answer. But now we have a reverse thing that's happening in the day and age where uh, the now anybody can identify as indigenous and anybody can say, um, as long as they say a few words in the language, they can be registered as a speaker which can be a bit problematic because then it's like it went from an extreme of you have to be no spanish to be considered indigenous to okay even if you say just two words now you're considered so that's what gets tricky um especially because in, in previous times it was seen it was shunned upon and now uh it's some people are reviving it but some people are are outside of the community especially not even necessarily within the communities people are trying to revive the language but they're doing it for personal gain, which uh, it's okay to gain stuff from something. However, if people aren't giving back to the communities, then it, then the communities are essentially doing what has, has historically been happening in this colonization, which is giving, giving, but receiving very little or not receiving um, much at all, which I do uh, find um, a little bit troublesome uh, to say the least, because again, it, it really does come back to that uh, term of respect. But the language, again, it has been, it really has been how, like we said, it's been the community who has uh, made sure that the, the, the younger generations still speak it. Like, for example, in, in our community, uh, they actually did release a documentary um, earlier, like in 2019, on which I didn't even imagine. I never imagined that we would actually be known because our community was, it's pretty isolated. It's, um, I remember how to get there, actually. you uh, There's roads and everything, but you still have to take like a, long road and it's in a, de a desert region known as the Mixteca Poblana, which actually uh, propels a lot of um, indigenous immigrants, not necessarily even to other parts of Mexico, like Mexico City or Puebla, but they leave directly to the United States, which leads into them just really losing um, the language and parts of the culture. Although I will like to note that um, because uh, again, I, do, I knew the community somewhat well, uh, there, there still do events like the Carnaval, which is a syncretization of the Carnaval that's done in like Europe, as well as um, the festivals are already happening prior to colonization. So those things still occur. occur um, but and then regarding the 
intelligibility or unintelligibility of the language. Uh, people might say that it's difficult to understand or, but it's because they are either non-native speakers or they're not exposed to the language. And another option which would be that they're not studying it. But I know that how we said, you can understand it. Like I myself have also heard uh, Nahuatl from El Salvador and it's pretty understandable. I don't see it as a hindrance or I'm not to the point where I'm thinking, oh, I don't understand them. Like, oh, I, I get the gist of what they're saying. Like you understand. And there's also another interesting thing that happens, um, especially prior to the 1990s, which was that because of the stigma, a lot of community members um, in various Nahuatl communities especially if they're around other indigenous languages or indigenous communities that no longer speak indigenous language, they mainly speak it or spoke within the community and then they would leave and kind of think that these communities around here speak it because again, geographically they know the area, but if some people don't travel that far or didn't travel that far, so they might not have known that Nahuatl was also spoken much Northern up and not just in our case, the state of Puebla, but in Estado de Mexico, Nayarit, uh, Jalisco. Uh, and I actually did have a story once where my, my mom did say that there was some people from an, a town in um, in central Puebla, also now with speaking, and we have a lot of them actually living here in uh, the community that I grew up in, um, in L.A. Uh, they went over to help something with the church over there. Um, I'm not sure why I wasn't there. It happened back in the 80s. But they went to go help um, with decorations of the church, and they were just speaking in Spanish because assuming that um, <laughs> we, we might be, they might not speak it, so they just didn't, but some community members just being like well it's who we are they just spoke it and then they understood it and then they, they actually said now so you understand us and they were like yeah it was a little bit different but we understand you and then from then on they just started speaking in now which goes to show that as long as people get a bit exposed they'll understand and one another thing that happens is that people might get a little bit in disagreements on well my variant we say it like this but we say it like this like for example the word if you tell somebody um the word for why or por qué, um, for us, it would be tleca. Uh, the classical, it would be uh, tleica. But if you ask somebody from the town that uh, the people who were in our hometown, they would say tleica. And native speakers might be like, why do you say it like that? But in the end, they still know that it's the same word. They're just a little bit in disagreement on how to say it. But do they understand each other? The answer is yes. Yeah. As teachers and learners, um, what uh, is there a standard that you're teaching? Is there a standard that you're learning? Or are you learning a regional variation of the language first? Now, because there's so many variants in dialects, 20, 27 to 31, depending on which source you're looking at. Um, okay. There's a lot of variety in this language, you know, so... Mm. I think it's important, you know, the way that I approach it with my students, it's like, let's say you don't know English at all, you know. So if you want to learn English, you're going to take an American English class, you know. So you just stick with American English. You know, you can learn British English at the same time. It may be similar, but there's, you know, there's differences. So it can get confusing if you learn multiple dialects at the same time. So our uh, collective, our teachers are from Chicontepec, Veracruz, and also Tamasunchale, San Luis Potosí, and that's in the Huasteca region of Mexico. Now the Huasteca region comprises of different states, right? It's a nature region. and so there's one million speakers there. So we stick with those dialects because our teachers are from there. Um, and so we continue to teach the Waseca dialects. However, as I go along the lessons, I make it a point, you know, especially with the, the how you say hello, because it's different ways. And it's not a direct translation. You know, it's just a word like, for example, uh, like Daniel said, you know, Yawi, you know, there's also King Yawi. In the Waseca, there's Piyali, there's also Yali, and you know, but if you go in central Mexico, it's more like Panolti, you know, Chicahuatica, you know, so it's mm. different words that mean the same, somewhat translate the same, and also, you know, understanding that sometimes you can't translate something directly, you know, especially yeah, from a yeah. different language family, you know, and so 
we stick with that. We we also acknowledge, and I also point out the different ways of saying things as well. You know, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and also the ancient Nahuatl as well. You know, I think that the ancient Nahuatl is also important. It's also known as classical Nahuatl. Um, the language of the nobility, especially, especially we're talking about the Mexica nobility. So it's another, and it's different dialects in itself too, uh, especially in, in central Mexico, that's where they were spoken. Um, they're no longer spoken, but the ones that are closely related are the ones from Mexico City. Um, okay. And so with that, you know, and, and especially in academia, there's there's just like this hyper- focused on the that specific one um mm. and so yes it's it's important you know to learn how it was spoken you know back then you know also know it as colonial now um but it's important to know that there's over 1.7 oh, over 1.6 million speakers so another one of our goals in our collectives uh Tapasoli as well as speak now dot com is to speak it and to speak it how it's spoken now um and to also understand that with learning the language you're going to learn the culture with the culture you also have to understand um the resistance that all these now what speakers have gone through um and so with that you know we also help the communities that um we uh learn from you know um, with, you know, it's just a collective, it's a collective of different, you know, I don't yeah. know how to draw. So the students started doing the videos, you know, um, <laughs> and so also, you know, one of our teachers is also a filmmaker. So they have a film and they show it in different, you know, different um, film festivals, you know, and that's, that's one way because of the travels and everything. That's one way that you can help out the community, you know, but by putting it into film, and seeing exactly what's going on with their own, you know, because mm-hmm. each community is different. So yeah, yeah. I'm curious to know about code switching, and I'm curious to know how, uh, you know, where we experience that as Nahuatl and Spanish speakers, um, and what that's like, and how you know, is there anything attached to it? Is it normal? Is it stigmatized? Is it encouraged or discouraged? Like, how do people communicate between, you know, the, between the two languages um, or back and forth? Or do you use it with certain people and other people you wouldn't use it with? Like, how how do we code switch? It actually segues pretty well. Uh, and it kind of goes back to the um, the last question of, pretty much of when is it used and uh, how can we help the communities. Uh, It happens with code switching, it gets a little bit different than um, American English dialects where we might still be comfortable using it uh, with people who may be outside of our communities. I know that I have a variant of English that is very particular to a certain part of LA. um, And then when I go out of it, um, some people understand me, other people are like, why do you sound like that? And it's like, well, it's because I'm I'm not trying to think so much about the way I'm speaking and it gets similar to Nahuatl except that and because of the stigma because of racial discrimination economic discrimination uh, employment discrimination uh, code switching becomes a thing where similar to how I said earlier where communities didn't speak it outside of the community even if there were other indigenous people in the same uh, bus because that you know I w- we would take the bus uh, then that's when it, if people may stop speaking it, or especially if people might make comments on it, like, why are you speaking like that? Or in Spanish, ¿Por qué hablan así? Ya no hablan así. Uh, or sometimes people, when they go into employment, they might they might be telling them that they can't be speaking it like that. Or to prevent um, their children from having that uh, an accent or not being able to fully defend themselves in the Spanish language, they refrain from uh, teaching another language overall. And what I would also go with is code switching and also with um, the last question about how can we help um, the uh, Nahuatl speakers is also remembering that the communities have reasons, even if they might seem simple, which they're not on why they stop speaking or why they code switch or why they don't even use certain words. For example, um, I know I saw once a video where somebody was saying that they were a professor of the, of the language, but not a native speaker or from the communities but they were saying how they were asking a native speaker how to say um, 
how to say a uh, burro or donkey in in Nahuatl, and the and the and the manager responded with a burro, which is in Spanish, and the and the person teaching this wasn't wasn't exactly particularly happy about the response. However, when you when you do understand the communities, you might think maybe they just didn't know that word. It's also possible that the community no longer uses the, like a uh, a word for donkey or um. It also because I'm also again also uh, letting people know that uh, what I want to say is you know it's just you know for um it's just to you know proceed with caution but people who are not from the communities or who haven't really analyzed why the communities um code switch is sometimes people think that people are just simply don't want to revive the language of their own community which is not always the case I know some people have said well I visited a a town in Mexico and and they were so proud of speaking it or they spoke it to me. Uh, but the thing is, there's a difference between being a visitor in the Nahuatl community versus having uh, personal ties. Um, and it does change the things because then uh, people might might speak it or might not speak it. Uh, but also, uh, code switching also happens again with the racial discrimination. What are people going to say? And some people might not care what people say, but those comments may still be directed at you. And how Quitlaug uh, mentioned earlier uh, about discrimination. I myself, uh, I never tried forcefully showing how indigenous I was. I was actually trying to be like, no, I'm not. And But I remember in, in high school, in the ninth grade, I had long hair. And mind you, I was into like metal music and like punk. So me being a teenager, I was, that's why I grew out my hair. But the community had no problem in going Indio. Like, and they would make like the, the they would make um Northern, like plain natives, um, like war cries, which my community, we never did that. So it was just like, you're just meshing up communities. I don't know why. And um, which is pretty sad to know. Uh, and there's really reasons why, why I'm sure why they directed at me, not just because I'm indigenous, but also the way that I am, which, and that's, and it goes back to code switching where even if one refrains from speaking it in public, just the appearance of looking indigenous is already enough for some people to maybe not even code switch at all. But in but I guess in a positive light on on who might code switch, uh, it used to be at least in the case of our community and as well as many communities where the language was spoken uh, not just in uh, the in the home or but also spoken in the streets. And then once people would go into certain like uh, gatherings places such as like a like a plaza where people like uh, sell their goods or anything like that, then they would speak with community members of other Nahuatl speaking communities, and that's when they would come back to. Uh, to what is it I'm to now what and they make another reason why cultivation may happen is like for example also in our home in our community we are one of uh three languages in the region so it's not just Nahuatl, but there's also um Ngigua, also known which is also known as uh, Popoluca and then there's also a uh, Mixtec uh, so there's three different languages and I know so from what I've heard from uh, people that uh that did uh leave the community sometimes you know to sell their goods they would they would use Spanish because they didn't speak the same language they would speak Mixtec how is a Mexican speaker going to understand a Nahuatl speaker? So that's why sometimes people would kill it. So I would, so uh, in a nutshell, I would really um, tell people to be a bit more mindful on why people code switch. It could be that they're ashamed and that's it, but it could also be that there's more to it and it could be the reasons that I mentioned. Yeah, I, I, I definitely understand that. You know, it, it's sometimes what does come out, you know, in our classes, um, you know, it's, it's uh, the, the trauma that has been passed down because of all the discrimination. Um, mm. And I think that, you know, as a collective, what we provide is the safe space for, because we've also, you know, um, attracted native speakers, you know, and sometimes native speakers uh, like Daniel, you know, where the language kind of stopped with them but they want to come back to it, you know, and, and the, it's a space where you're able to speak whatever language you're comfortable with, you know. Um, and so I think that that's also important, you know, um, you know, the way that I see it with quote switching, because I was mostly also raised on the border, like I was exposed to English. So it's not that I'm saying that it was easy for me to learn English, because it's a very difficult language to learn. Um, but I think that, you know, creating a space space where you can speak whatever language you feel comfortable with, uh, is also important in language revitalization work. You know, it's interesting because as you're talking and especially about 
you know, the reasons why people may want to code switch and, you know, being respectful in communicating with uh, speakers of indigenous languages. And I'm thinking about something and I don't want this to come out wrong, but if it does, my heart is in the right place. I promise. I'm thinking about how Mexico specifically has become such a tourist destination, particularly during the pandemic. I feel like people were going to Mexico and especially to the resorty areas a lot. And they were, you know, back going back and forth to Mexico and they, they felt safe doing so. And I think about like, I, I haven't been to Mexico yet. I have not yet had the pleasure. I really want to go someday. And what I think about as a future tourist to Mexico is, okay, I'm here in this space and I'm, I am taking part in what is a colonial construct right now. And especially with Spanish being spoken, but knowing myself and knowing that I'm curious and I want to engage and I want to, I want to, um, experience might not be the right word, but I want to, I want to be close to indigenous communities. Like I want to, I want to see what people are doing and not in a, like looking at people like they're in a, in a zoo at all, but just because I, I want to, I want to understand a Mexico that I am never told about because I only see the resorts and I only see the Instagram photos and stuff like that. So the first thing I'm thinking about myself and I, I want other people to think about is how can we as outsiders, knowing that we are outsiders, knowing that we are not part of this community, how can we engage respectfully and how can we communicate respectfully? And I guess uh, from your perspective and, and whatever your thoughts are on this, like, what do you think would be the best way for people who are not part of the community and they don't have a, you know, connection or blood relation to it? Like, how can we engage and, and what would be, what would be your way to do that? Or what would you tell people who want to do that? I think you make a good point in regards to where people want like to stay in Mexico, a lot of the resorts, you know, mm -hmm. but if you do want to engage and you do want to, you know, help out, I think it's important to go into the actual communities, you know, to go into the towns, you will also always see a, a tianguis, you know, an outdoor market, you know, another word that comes from now, it's Tianquis or Tianquisli, um, buy their food, buy their art. Um, you know, if you if you're able to engage in a conversation with them, you know, ask about their day. You know, um, ask how you can help. You know, I think you, by you just like engaging with them, buying their food, buying their product, I think that in itself you're already helping them. You know. Um, and that's something that I also incorporate, you know, and with in my life too, you know, I think that it's important to, you know, not buy coffee at a corporate company and just buy the local coffee, you know, yeah. um, buy, you know, go to art shows, you know, of, of black, brown and indigenous and people of color, you know, um, share it you know, share with other people, you know, share if you want to a restaurant and you love the food, you know, put it in your story, you know, tag the restaurant, you know, that could be like, oh, if I go there, then I can go there. You know, that can, you can tell your friends, you know, I think that's, 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 uh, that's one way. Yeah. So, um, uh, first of all, actually, I would like to acknowledge, um, Al, you actually did a very good job about, of pretty much practicing what I spoke earlier, which was to be careful and mindful on when you're saying things because I, I do believe that what you said was actually pretty good um with but you know it was a perfectly valid question uh but even then i i would say that even myself as someone who does come from uh, indigenous ancestry because i was removed from all of that even someone like myself has to be mindful that i may say things that are a bit ignorant or i might say things that um that could consider like a microaggression which again it could be unintentional it's just because i've been removed from it so I would say that if even if someone like myself who knows that 
although I am still pretty close to the language, if I know that I have work to do of having certain unconscious biases uh, getting out of my head, people who are more removed from that, even if they are Mexican, should be mindful of that. And I say this because, because the question was to how do we help the communities? And sometimes people, they are so focused on reviving their culture and reconnecting, which is a very beautiful thing. And I do believe people should have the right to do that. However, people should also make sure that if there's information that they don't pass it on as authentic culture, which has unfortunately been happening for the, the last, especially the last like 30 years, which has been really um, people having, at the same time, they're questioning it, but they're also kind of just passing things on that are uh, misinformation. Um, and, but how Kutlavak said is also make sure that you're also checking up on the communities because the communities, um, they're perfectly okay with you going in uh, with respect, just knowing that they're going to be there welcoming you. They're going to be like, oh, how are, you? how are you? You know, pretty much being a cordial person, especially since the Nahuatl language and most indigenous languages are have their very cordial side as well as their more informal side like any other language. So it's really making sure how they are. Because uh, how you also mentioned, um, people go to the resorts. And one resort that people, many people go to is actually Acapulco, which is right by in Guerrero. And Guerrero has a lot of Nahuatl speakers. So it's very easy to pretty much just take a, a, a micro booster, or a, a shuttle and go to a community and, you know, see what they're about, see what they're selling. And it really is buying um, their products. And another thing that I would note is if you're going to be buying a product from indigenous communities, please make sure that you're paying the price, not trying to ask for a lower price. Unfortunately, especially because I had family members who, um, I'm not sure they still do it, but they wouldn't make uh, like um, like figurines, or like um, Christian figurines. Uh, Anon did that and she would sell them. I had another um, family members who uh, they would make what's called um, uh, cinta or like kind of like out of palm where they would weave baskets. And other communities also make things like uh, shawls. They might make uh, weepilis or skirts. Uh, some people make shoes or they prepare organic food. And mind you, the indigenous communities have been doing everything that we're all about now, which is organic food, non-GMO, uh, pretty much all natural. We, the communities have been doing that, except the difference is when it comes from indigenous community, people have this need or they believe that they're, it's okay to ask them, can I get a lower price? But they don't have any problem telling a bigger corporation, okay, they just accept the price reward. Mm-hmm. So I really think it is going that because again, the communities, they it's in the culture to be organic, to be you know about the earth, and also you know if you're going to be using uh, anything modern, anything chemicals, how do you um, keep the culture within it to make sure that you're not going to be harming the planet and the earth itself? Because uh, again, a lot of these things take time, and a lot of these cultures have been preserved also because of economic needs. So like in our community. Um, the, mm-hmm. the tenates or tana as they call it over there they were made um, and they're they're really not found anywhere else but in that community and uh, and so there has been um, even from neighboring communities that have uh, have exploited the local artisans and they try to just get the, the least they can pay the better essentially which has not been a very good thing because again a lot of these people are trying to feed themselves they're trying to feed their families mm-hmm. and because there's mm-hmm. also this lack of promoting mental health and making sure that we communicate effectively, uh, especially back in, I would say from the 1900s to 1970s, it was very difficult for people, especially um, especially men and women in their own right, how to express what was going on because a lot of parents were not, they didn't want to go back and tell their kids, yeah, this is all, this is all I was able to get. And unfortunately, some of these things still happen where people want to just the, the, the they can give less to the communities that's what they want to do and I'm going uh, back to that it takes time to make these things and mm-hmm. and it's actually already at a pretty good price that they sell these things so it's a bit unreasonable yeah. to be saying can I get a lower price and so really helping the communities is just really making sure that uh, even if you are yeah. of indigenous ancestry knowing that you could still be wrong about things or that you could still be making statements that might be problematic and really analyzing yourself and seeing and permanent solutions to helping the communities like for example throwing just doing a food drive it's it's a good idea but it's not sustainable but telling the communities okay so what do you like and for example our community they now cultivate um pitahaya mm-hmm. or um dragon fruit and it actually has been growing naturally. I used to go as a kid and back in those days, like in 2004, it was not in demand like at all. And I would just be able to just pick it up and just eat it. Um, but nowadays it's become a, a big market. 
but a lot of the producers um that they get their food from uh asia and again it's nothing against the content yeah. of asia but a lot of indigenous communities also do are trying to impose a product that naturally grows in the area and it was actually exported from central valley of mexico but yet um but yet a lot of people are still having trouble in uh selling the product mm-hmm. and this also has led to deforestation which is also like another topic that we'll we'll get into another time because it's deforestation um but really it's um it's just making sure because the communities are getting what's yeah. right it's again it's really not asking for a lower price and checking and again it's always sustainable mm-hmm. instead of temporary solutions i'd love to hear about the collective and uh, what you do you, you talked a little bit about what you do, but, um, you know, let us know what you do. Tell us about the collective, the name of the collective, and most importantly, uh, not just what you do, but where we can find you. And if we want to work with you, how can we go about that? Yes. Uh, so um, we're part of Tlatotepasoli, which means language nest. Uh, we're on Facebook. We also have a website, tlatotepasoli.com. Um, and so we are now a study collective and it's a language nest. So we, you know, we aim to create uh, materials and, you know, to incorporate language revitalization methods to teach the language. So everyone is invited to learn a la Plaza de Cultura y Artes. We do once in a while do workshops at different schools and universities. I myself on the online part of it is speaknow.com, speaknow.com. Um, you know, it's an online school, you know, so it's online learning. I have done, you know, I have taught uh, preschoolers, which is one of the most fulfilling things ever, like just sponges. So beautiful to hear yeah. them like, oh my gosh, you said exactly how I said it. Uh, to <laughs> elders, you know, having elders telling me, you know, like, uh, because even within my classes, I also ask for feedback because this is our class. This is our community, community-based. Yeah. And that has been the model till this day, even when creating materials. Right now, I'm creating the material with them in mind, you know, how they, uh, mm. each student works, you know, how they learn, you know. Um, so our online classes are only for Black and Brown and Indigenous and people of color only. Um, because, you know, when we're learning our original languages, we're learning about ourselves. We're learning about our current family members, and we're also learning about our ancestors. You know, um, kind of like outsiders have this idea of like, oh, you know, it's this is fun, and I'm going to learn another language, and then I'm a, I'm a polyglot, and that's fun. Um, but there are times when that, for us, is not fun. You know, there may be some traumas that come out as well. You know, that's something yeah. that, you know, I also make sure that I provide my students with other resources. And, and, and uh, what also comes out is a lot of uh, identity issues. You know, we're mm-hmm. giving all these labels, which are still colonial set of labels like, you know, uh, Latino and Hispano and um, indigenous and how that's positive and Indio and how that's negative, you know, um, and so, you know, just creating a safe space, supportive space for everyone to learn, whether it be online or whether it be in person. Mm-hmm. And then you can support us. You can go to speaknawat.com, um, uh, speaknawat on IG, click at the link in our bio. Um, you can sign up to our classes there. You can find a way to support us. Um, free learning resources as well. You want to make it as accessible as possible. Um, you know, each of us, mostly each of us have our own YouTube channels as well. So there's a lot of resources. Wonderful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you for, thank you for sharing that. Thank you for the work that you do, uh, both of you. And, um, I will add links all the links we talked about, I will add them into the show notes for this episode because I really want people to uh, find you. I want people to engage with you and I want people to support you. I want people to support you and support the good work that you're doing. And um, thank you so much for this conversation. I've learned a lot and I've learned enough to know that I have a lot more to learn. And I'm 
I, I want to do that work for myself and get to understand more about not only the language, but the culture and, and the initiatives that, um, that, that you're, that you're talking about and that we've talked about here, um, today in this conversation. Thank you both so much. Uh, thank you for having us. I really appreciate your work as well. You know, I really, 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 I really appreciate your work as well. You know, it's mutual. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you both so much. I'd like to end each episode on the same question, just to have a little bit of fun. And that is to both of you, or you can flip a coin, decide who wants to answer this or not. <laughs> Do you have any jokes popular sayings, tongue twisters, cool slang words, idioms, words of wisdom, or words of advice in Nahuatl to share and to teach us. There is one word, actually, and it's, it's called um, destlaco, which is someone who visits people's homes only to criticize what they have. So that was actually pretty cool finding out. Um, so Because I, I did ask my mom, is there something that's not as vulgar? Um, and then she started thinking about it. And then so that's what I, I started right now. It's this laco, which is pretty much um, how you described as, oh, it's somebody who goes to your house and they're like, hi, how are you? You know, let's hang out. You know, let me go to your house. And then when they leave your home after what you thought was a pleasant conversation, they're like, oh my goodness, that is the ugliest like wall decoration I've ever seen. Like, oh my God, that is the ugliest. Like, like yeah, that's so that this like is like someone just comes to visit you just to talk smack about like your home or the way you live. Like, oh my goodness, like why why is the house so small? And by the way, Daniel is working on a vocabulary list for his for his dialect. So very nice. I can't wait to see it. <laughs> it's actually pretty lengthy. I have to put a, a, a few more because I think I was gathering things more over like the weekend. The stuff that I have like I'm reading on this planner that I have just because I haven't I'm not in class just yet. So I just wrote a couple of notes in it that like my mom would have where I have some on my phone. Um, but yeah, but then I would actually I also like to acknowledge um, the, the collective uh, because since day one that I got to um, the Placita, the Casa de Culturas y Artes, uh, I felt welcomed and I and um, I always felt I actually felt pretty safe at every moment and I was actually worried about going just because I had met people previously that when I wasn't searching it just <laughs> when they just came across me in life where they wanted me to be indigenous in a certain way yeah. they would never say it but whenever I wouldn't be what they considered indigenous and it was like oh then you must be ashamed it's like no like but when I came here since day one I was always, I always felt welcome. I did not feel any pressure to automatically say indigenous or I always never questioned. And, and what is it? Um, It was always, I always knew that if I wanted to share something that it would be up to me. And eventually I did, Um, I would say not just with Tlawak, but everybody in the collective, Um, they, they, all the work they do, I really do appreciate it because I know a lot of them learned the language when there was practically no internet or the infancy of the internet. So it was really difficult getting a hold of resources, especially if they're located in Mexico. So um, it really did help me to have uh, learn it a lot quicker and then being able to have a, essentially a speaker at home does help a lot with compiling the list. And how Hakuitlawak said, like I have a list that's up to right now, it's I think 22 pages. Um, and I'm trying to make sure that it's sing it's single spaced, by the way, so I'm not cheating <laughs> with like uh, big fonts or anything <laughs> like that. I'm doing it like, like a good essay, um, Times New Roman and 12 inch font. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, there's like a lot of words that we have. Um, and yeah, oh, uh, there's also, I guess, another one that we kind of did find like, uh, it's more respectful. Uh, so there used to be this thing where my mom and other community members have uh, said that uh, they used to see elders doing this. Um, I think it disappeared, but I wanted to, I wanted to find out what happened. But essentially whenever you two people would come across each other like on the street, and to say hi to each other, once they would depart, they would start like speaking to each other and saying words until eventually they disappeared, mm. like out of each other's sight. Mm. And the closest that you were able to get was um, Ika Momawisotse, which is like, kind of like with your con su permiso, or like usterito, like it's, yeah. So I've been having a lot of fun really, um, thanks to the collective and thanks to my mom who's been willing to contribute because I know some family members um, of other people that I know they're just they just don't want to share it so I'm, I think I'm really lucky and having found Lagrata Soli speak now what and a, a family member who's really willing to uh, teach me everything that they know and if I ever do find any more like slang words mm -hmm. or anything like that's cool or if I find the more vulgar one um, I'll let you know um, 
Do you have uh do you have a a word or a phrase or something for us in answer this um, question? Um well so because you know Spanish became you know our language, um there's <laughs> there's this one word like we say doña no seas don't seas doña doña chuy. And I think that's very particular of my family, not necessarily like where we're from. Um no seas doña chuy, don't be you know, um, Lady Chui, right? And so there supposedly there was this lady in the neighborhood that was very um, gossipy. And so that Ooh. became like, you know, if if you are being, if you're asking too many questions or if you're like going outside and looking, you know, there's like the police outside and, you know, oh, no seas Doña, Doña, Doña Chui, don't be gossipy. <laughs> yeah so that that that's what we have that's what i can remember oh wow those are good <laughs> ones those are good ones and daniel i still can't believe to say all of that about going to somebody's house just to dog them out later <laughs> you get that in one word i love that <laughs> yeah i remember when i first heard it i, I had to stop and tell mom like i'm like wait can you explain it like can you give me like a picture on like how it would happen and then she describes it like she's like, yeah, pretty much somebody goes to your house or like, hi, you know, let's, you know, let's hang out, you know, like, let's have lunch and then I'll go to your house. And then you think you're having a good conversation. Mm -hmm. And then later on, you hear that they're talking behind your back about the way you live, <laughs> the, your picture frames, anything that you have. And it's like, wow. But it's it's nice to know that because especially people think that there's no specific words just in Nahuatl or really in any indigenous language. But it does go to show that in, even yeah. within each community, there's words that are used that um, capture just with one phrase or one word, something like this kind of person. Like, I don't know there's something like that in English or in Spanish. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there is, but I have to find a dictionary. <laughs> but um, it's nice to know that in now there's also those things where it's like, oh, like, that's that's interesting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I love that. I really enjoy that. Oh, words. Words are amazing. And I, I'm excited to hear that you're working on this project. So uh, let us know when it's done so we can share it. Uh, you know, we can, you know, help share it and uh, looking forward to it. <laughs> Thank you again to you both. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Before I let you go, really quickly, don't think about this too hard, but in the situation where you've been sharing fellowship, community you've been talking with someone for quite some time and you're about to go your separate ways what is the best way in Nahuatl to say goodbye in our community at least from what I've heard it's uh, typically a timotaske which is like we'll see each other or like mostla like tomorrow like it means like tomorrow's gonna be a new day so mostla or timotaske oh does that just mean goodbye yeah you got it <laughs> Thank you both so much for this conversation, and I will be talking to you both soon.